Well, our reading comes from 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to read verse 9 to verse 22. That can be found on page 996 of the Church Bibles. And it will also appear on the screen if you'd like to follow along. So Paul writes, verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Well, as we look at that passage, let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that as we come to it now, you would still our hearts to hear what you have to say to us. We pray that you would speak to us today by your spirit and that we would leave here today renewed and refreshed, encouraged, challenged, that that we would be very conscious of your voice in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, if you haven't already, you may be getting to that point where you're ready to pull out the Christmas decorations for another year. Uh, If you're anything like us, there will be familiar decorations that come out each year. And I remember when I was growing up, each year my parents would attach thread uh, across the living room wall and then they would hang on it every Christmas card that arrived in the post. And with many of those cards came the annual Christmas newsletter. It's a phenomenon that with um, email and the various social media communication channels we have today, it it seems to have died out somewhat. But basically, the, the annual newsletter was sent out to friends and family at Christmas time, updating them on the year's events. Holidays taken, weddings celebrated, new additions to the family, graduations. They were all in there 
with a few smiling photographs taken at some of those big events. And invariably, what was presented in these Christmas letters was largely a positive picture of the year just gone. In fact, it was a bit like a a typed out, double-sided A4 Facebook feed, where, where those who received the letter may have had the impression that life couldn't really be any sweeter, that things really couldn't get any better. But of course, we know that life just isn't like that, is it? Nobody's year will have been an unbroken succession of joyful moments. Now, it's easy to be critical of that kind of thing. But in reality, when we're asked how we're doing, often the version that we present of ourselves is a positive one. Life is generally good. Things are are, are often going rather well. The Instagram version of our lives is often an airbrushed one. Just like those Christmas newsletters of yesteryear, it is life presented with the appropriate filter. But when we look back on the past year, no doubt we can all look back on ups and downs, joys and sorrows, struggles that we keep to ourselves rather than share the honest version with our friends and our family. But when we do that, we limit the opportunity for people to speak words of grace into our lives. And that is why I love the end of 2 Timothy, because this letter really is warts and all. Here we have this great church leader who had been used so powerfully by God, and yet he doesn't dress up his situation. He doesn't pretend that everything is hunky-dory. No, he closes out his letter expressing his need, expressing his heart, as well as his hopes. And it's in these closing words that we get a real sense of the emotional toll that this minister of the gospel has endured. But not only that, we see how the Lord has sustained him in his suffering. And so we, as we close out our series on 2 Timothy today, I just want to take a bit of time to see what we can learn from Paul's closing words here as he touches again on some of the, the main themes that we've seen in this letter. And my hope would be that as we close this book, so to speak, we'd be left not with a a sanitized impression of Christian life and leadership, but a realistic picture that will help us be better equipped to encourage our church leaders and one another to endure in the midst of suffering. And right from the beginning of this section, Paul makes no secret of his need for encouragement. If you look with me at verse 9, he writes, Do your best to come to me soon. Now that's not exactly subtle, is it? He doesn't get to the end of his letter and hint that it might be nice if at some point Timothy would perhaps consider dropping in on him. No, he urges him, do your best. Make this a priority. Get here as quickly as you can. Isn't that interesting? I mean, Paul has just spent this entire letter 
instructing Timothy on how to lead well in Ephesus, encouraging him not to quit, but to fulfill his ministry. And yet here he is urging Timothy to pack his bags and begin the long, arduous journey to Rome that will take him away from Ephesus for months. Why would he do that? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons that we see in these verses, but clearly one of them is that Paul was in real need of encouragement. And the reason for that becomes clear as we read on in verse 10. He urges Timothy to come to him soon for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. So Paul lists some names of men that Timothy would have known well. Names of prominent figures in the early church. Demas had served with Paul. He's mentioned in Paul's letter to the Colossians. He had shared in Paul's sufferings then as, as Paul wrote from prison. He'd been part of Paul's inner circle. But in Paul's hour of need, as he languished in a Roman dungeon, Demas had deserted him. Deserted. It's a strong word, isn't it? Demas wanted nothing more to do with Paul. He had abandoned him. And he'd headed off to Thessalonica, which was about as far away from Rome as he could get. And the reason? Well, because Paul says he was in love with the present world. The pressure of being associated with Paul's sufferings was just too much. Paul had been cancelled by his culture. And to be identified with him was to risk being cancelled as well. And for Demas, that was a price that was just too much to pay. His liberty, his reputation was too precious to risk. Like those Paul warns against in in chapter 3, when it came to it, Demas loved himself more than he loved God. He was so affected by love of this world that he lost sight of the big picture, God's eternal plan. And because he lost sight of eternity, the temporary shame and suffering that came with faithfulness to the gospel, in the end, it was just too much for Demas. And so a once loyal, faithful co-worker had deserted him at the crucial moment. How discouraging that must have been for Paul to be abandoned like that. And what would have made the pain all the worse was that these were wounds inflicted by someone who had served alongside him. And depending on how we understand the rest of that verse, that discouragement may have been compounded even further. You see, there's two names mentioned in verse 10, two other names who would have been very well known. In fact, one of them, Titus, even has a letter named after him in the New Testament. And there's actually no further information given about these guys other than what he's already said about Demas. The words used to describe Demas' desertion could equally be applied to Cretans and Titus. So a pessimistic reading of that verse 
would suggest that Paul's discouragement was compounded by further desertions of those who were once key leaders. Optimistically, we might say that Paul is just relaying the fact that two faithful leaders have gone to other towns to carry on his mission. Either way, in the case of Demas, we have a warning that even faithful Christian leaders can end up deserting. And if that could happen to Demas, well, it could happen to any Christian leader. And that's why it is so important to pray for our leaders, to encourage them, to spur them on so that they don't succumb to the temptation to look for an easier life, but instead remain faithful to the calling that God has given them. You know, it's interesting that this letter, it closes with the plural you. Paul's intention in in writing this letter is so that it will be read not just by Timothy, but by the whole church. Paul wasn't just engaging in some private correspondence. He is open with the whole church about the challenges he faced. This letter gives a tremendous insight for the church into the challenges that are faced by church leaders. It is there for us so that we can better understand how we can support and pray for those who've been called to lead. But Demas wasn't the only one who had abandoned Paul. In verse 16, we get a sense of just how isolated Paul was. He writes, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. So what he's talking about there is that those who could have acted as character witnesses for Paul when he faced a Roman court, they'd all abandoned him. And it would have been so easy for Paul, after being abandoned like that, It would have been so easy for him to be filled with bitterness, to close off his heart to the church, to his fellow believers. But that's not what he does. Instead, he does two things. First of all, in verse 16, he essentially prays for them. May it not be charged against them. Isn't that remarkable? That he doesn't hold their treatment of him against them. Instead of being consumed by bitterness, he forgives. How could he possibly do that? How can we do that? When we face betrayal, when we're wronged, when we experience injustice, well, the reality is that in our strength, we can't. We cannot possibly endure that kind of pain. But God in his grace doesn't expect us to. And he didn't expect Paul to. Humanly speaking, Paul may have been on his own. He may have been abandoned by those he'd expected to count on in his hour of need. But he wasn't alone. Far from it. The reason that he could forgive, the reason he could go on was because, verse 17, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. When everyone else had deserted him, Jesus was still there. When everyone else was ashamed of him, Jesus was right there identifying with him. And friends, if you are faithful to him, Jesus stands by you as well. Whatever hostility, whatever 
discouragements, whatever abandonments you might face for your faithfulness to Christ, he will never leave you nor forsake you. And he is the one who gives you the resources to forgive those who do. So instead of being filled with bitterness, Paul prays for those who deserted him. And secondly, he leans into the provision that God had given him. The provision of a faithful brother in Christ. Paul knew that he needed encouragement from Timothy. He was honest about his hurt and he was honest about his need. He opened his heart to him. He didn't pretend that everything was okay. I wonder, do you have a Timothy in your life? Is there someone that you can be totally honest with? Someone you can go to when you feel weak or discouraged? Someone who will come alongside to comfort you and help you? One of the the ways that God ministers to us is through his people. And it's been one of the great blessings of being the minister here to witness the way that that has been lived out in this church. The way that members of this church have expressed God's love to one another in a myriad of different ways. Whether it's being a listening ear, a comforting presence, a prayerful support, a a hospitable home, or, or practical service. Needs have been met. Hurts have been healed as God's people have responded. But in order to respond to need, we need to be open about our needs. And that takes humility. Takes a willingness to drop the pretense that everything is okay and a belief that God's blessing of his people is one of the ways in which he ministers to us. Paul believed that. And that's why he urged Timothy to come to him. But Paul wasn't completely alone. There were some who were still loyal. We read verse 11, Luke alone is with me. So the author of Luke's gospel and the book of Acts, who had traveled with Paul, he was there in Rome alongside him. Now, Paul doesn't mean that he was the only one who was there, and that's clear from the end of the letter in verse 21, where Paul mentions a few people uh, there who send greetings from Rome, a few uh, slightly tricky names to, 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 to get around, so I'm not going to just repeat them there, but you'll see them there in verse 21. But what he's referring to in verse 11 is that Luke was the only church leader who was with him. But he didn't want that to remain the case. As well as calling Timothy to Rome, he wanted Timothy to bring Mark. Verse 11, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Now, this is a really interesting request from Paul. You see, there was some history in that relationship. We read in Acts chapter 15 of Paul's disapproval of Mark after Mark had ducked out of one of their mission trips. It had led to a big disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, and they'd ended up going their separate ways. It would have no doubt been a painful time where those two faithful Christian leaders disagreed over Mark. But here's Paul years later asking Timothy to get Mark, for he is very useful to me for ministry. And I think this is a wonderful insight into God's grace. Whatever had happened in the past, 
clearly their relationship had been restored. That tells us that past disagreement doesn't need to have the final word. By the grace of God, relationships can be restored when we forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. Sadly though, not every difficult situation that Paul encountered led to restoration. In verse 14, we learn of someone who hurt him badly. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At the end of uh, Paul's first letter to Timothy, Paul refers to an Alexander who made shipwreck of his faith. And if this is the same Alexander, then Paul is talking about someone who had once been part of the church, but who had turned their back on the gospel and had caused Paul terrible harm. Now, Paul is not talking here about the disappointment of seeing uh, someone who was once seemingly faithful turning away. No, he's talking about someone who has caused him real pain and hurt and whose hostility was still alive and kicking. That's why Paul warns Timothy to watch out for him. And it's why he looks to the justice of God to right whatever wrong Alexander had caused. And that is not bitter or vengeful to do that. It's biblical. Paul had been badly wronged by this guy. But rather than take matters into his own hands, he entrusted his situation to the God who sees all things, who knows all things, and one day will right every wrong. And that is such a liberating thing to be able to do. To leave every wrong that we endure to the justice of God. To know that no wrong will go unpunished. Either the person who wrongs us will one day face the judgment of a just and holy God for their wrongdoing, or they will repent and trust in Jesus and he will bear their punishment for them. Whatever happens, God will deal with their wrongdoing. So we don't have to. We don't have to hold on to a grudge. We don't have to be consumed with bitterness. We don't have to keep reliving whatever it is they've done. Like Paul, we can trust that God will deal with whatever it is. So we don't have to. Paul is so honest here about some of the hurt that he had experienced in his ministry. But he didn't wallow in his pain. No, these verses are a testament to the grace of God in the midst of pain. You know, maybe right now you are going, something, going through something that is really, really hard. And maybe you're asking, why is God letting me go through this? Well, be assured from the life of Paul that God has a purpose even in our pain. 
that his grace is at work in even the darkest of situations. Even when we can't make sense of our suffering, there is nothing that we endure as Christians that is pointless. And Paul had the blessing of seeing something of God's purposes being worked out. As he stood before a Roman court, conscious of the Lord by his side, he was able to say, verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. It was Paul's suffering and persecution that led to an audience before a Roman court, perhaps even before Caesar himself where he could share the message of the gospel with those who hadn't heard it yet. Paul's suffering had a purpose. It was so that the gospel might be declared. Christian, don't waste your suffering. When you face hardship, when you endure opposition, pray that the grace of God would shine through in your response so that those who don't yet know Jesus would see something so different and yet so attractive that they would long to know the one who stands by his people in the most difficult times. Paul knew God had a purpose in his suffering. And he also knew that ultimately that suffering would one day come to an end. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Unlike Demas, whose, whose temporary perspective caused him to abandon Paul, Paul was able to endure because his perspective was eternal. He knew that one day his suffering would be over. One day all the hostility, all the hatred, all the opposition would cease. One day the Lord would bring him into his heavenly kingdom. A kingdom where there would be no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more pain, and no more death. And it was that eternal perspective that allowed him to keep going in the present. And that's a wonderful reminder for us that whatever we might have to face in this life, however bad it gets, it's only for a little while. One day, for anyone who trusts in Jesus, all of that will give way to an eternity of joy and gladness as we delight in the Lord's presence forever and ever. And it was in the light of that eternal hope that I think we see the second reason why Paul was so keen to get Timothy to Rome. See, Paul's time on earth was coming to an end, but he wasn't interested in winding down. Even in prison, he was still doing all he could to ensure that the glory of the Lord would be made known. I mean, just look at who he is gathering together here at the end of this letter. Notice verse 15, he tells Timothy that he sent Tychicus to Ephesus, presumably to stand in for Timothy while he was in Rome. Paul's thinking strategically all the time. And in verse 13, he gives Timothy instructions of what to bring with him. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. 
So at the end of this letter, what we have is Paul gathering together three of the key leaders in the early church along with a series of important documents. Luke, Mark, and Timothy all together in Rome with Paul. And what may have been copies of his letters and parts of scripture. It looks like Paul's plan was to invest in these men, to prepare them to carry on building the church, to train them and to strategize for the years ahead after he'd gone so that more and more people could hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a wonderful ending to this letter? A letter that's all about enduring, suffering for the sake of the gospel. It doesn't end with a downcast, defeated prisoner wallowing in his suffering. It ends with hope and optimism. It ends with a leader who had endured suffering, who is honest about his pain, but who still has his eyes on the glory of the Lord, longing that more and more people would know his saving love. And shouldn't he have every reason to be optimistic? After all, whatever they planned when they went to Rome, when they got together, it worked. Despite all the opposition, despite all the hatred, despite being abandoned, despite being tortured, despite being imprisoned and then facing execution, here we are, 2,000 years later, a people gathered together from all over the world, united by the good news of the gospel, that in Jesus Christ, we have a Savior who has borne our sin and shame and promises eternal life to anyone who trusts in him. And would it be our prayer as his church here in Leith that the glory of the Lord would be our deepest desire and that more and more people would come to know the salvation that only he can give. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your sovereign purposes being worked out in suffering. We thank you that you sustain us, not in our own strength, but by the power of your spirit, that we are not left alone in suffering, that we are not abandoned by you, that you are with us moment by moment. Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust in you, to look to you, to seek your face in every trial, in every difficult circumstance. And we pray that you would be glorified in this church, that you would be lifted up, that our deepest desires would be that your name is praised and that the world around us hears of the love that there is, the saving love there is in Jesus Christ. And as we come to this table now to take bread and wine and remember again, who he is and what he has done, would you strengthen our hearts, strengthen our faith by your spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.